You are listening to History Man, a project of vkbarns.com, where we walk in the footsteps of heroes and proclaim freedom reigns. On today's episode, we're talking to Kirk Johnson, the state park manager of the Andrew Jackson State Park in Lancaster, South Carolina. Welcome, Kirk. Thank you. Glad to be here. Kirk, the, the namesake of this park is actually the topic of our conversation today, and we're looking to you to kind of give us a first-hand look of Andrew Jackson, who uh, grew up in this area. This is an area that was talked about on previous episodes by uh, Kip Carter and Scott Seifert, and love to hear what you have to tell us about Andrew Jackson. Great. Uh, Andrew Jackson, to the surprise of many people, actually was born and grew up in the Carolinas in the late 1700s, and the big event that surrounded his childhood was the American Revolution. And here at the park, we try to focus on that story. Later on, Andrew Jackson becomes a little bit more famous than a boy in the Revolution and eventually becomes president of the United States. But we can see a lot of connections here to what's going on in his childhood and helped create the man that Andrew Jackson became and characteristics he carried with him through the rest of his life. So our story kind of looks at that as to what happened here and made him who he became that influenced our entire nation. I appreciate you saying that. I know this park is, uh, is kind of a gem in South Carolina. You have a, uh, several buildings here. Describe for our listeners uh, the park and, and what you have to offer here. Well, the park was created to honor Andrew Jackson originally. Uh, in the 1950s, Lancaster County and the state worked together to create the park. And historically, we feature a museum. It was a building built in the 1950s to kind of give you an idea of what a frontier cabin might have looked like. And in that museum building, we've got exhibits talking generally about what was life like in the backcountry of South Carolina in the 1770s, but also goes into more detail about Andrew Jackson's life, especially his childhood. And then we go on into the future of his life as well when he became one of the most famous people in America as well as President of the United States. Along with the Park Museum, we have a building that is operated by the retired educators of Lancaster County, a volunteer group who try to promote different educational components of Lancaster County, and this group promotes the history of education in Lancaster County. Uh, it started out as a bicentennial project, discussed the 200 years of education in Lancaster County, and they've just continued to maintain the building. And the connection to Andrew Jackson is, first of all, he was a little bit better educated than many of the other children in the Waxhaw. His mother had visions of him becoming a minister and sent him to a academy that originally had been founded by the local reverend of the Waxhaw meeting. And then Jackson himself also taught briefly while he was trying to figure out the next steps in his life after the revolution. So it's fitting that we've got an education unit here as well. Probably the biggest attraction we have historically on the park is a statue or sculpture that was done by Anna Hyatt Huntington, and she named it Boy of the Waxhaw, and it was her vision of how Andrew Jackson might have appeared looking off to his future as a young man here in the Waxhaws. And the statue was dedicated to the property on Andrew Jackson's 200th birthday. It's a bronze it depicts Jackson sitting upon a horse gazing off into the distance and really a fascinating sculpture to see up close. She put in details like a rope bridle for his horse, Andrew Jackson is barefoot, 
his shirt's missing a button, things you can look around for as you study the sculpture up close. If you recognize the name Anna Hyatt Huntington, uh, she's got many sculptures on her family property at Brook Green Gardens in Merle's Inlet. And so that's another South Carolina connection that we have here at the park. Besides the historical areas, we have hiking trails that cover a couple of miles. We've got a 25-site campground, have a small fishing lake, and we're open year-round to all of these activities. So the park stays fairly busy, but we still lean back on Andrew Jackson as the main purpose for us being here. The story of Andrew Jackson is a fascinating story, like you were saying. His father, I believe, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, I have a tendency to go down these rabbit holes, but his father, I believe, was named Andrew Jackson and his grandfather, maybe, and they came into this uh, community uh, following his mama's family over to this community from the Ulster plantations of Ireland. Is that correct? That, that's right. Uh, the Jacksons were Scotch-Irish. Elizabeth Jackson, she was a Hutchinson, and four of her sisters had settled in this area in the mid-1760s. Uh, she was the last to arrive here around 1765 and tried to settle near her sisters. The Scotch-Irish were very communal, very family-oriented, and you tried to have people that you could trust nearby, and family were the people that you could trust in their minds. The Jacksons actually lived about nine miles north of where we sit today and had gotten a property that they found after the land rush to the Waxhaws. Andrew Jackson's father hurt himself somehow, so severely working on his farm that he eventually died. The local cemetery was at the Waxhaw Meeting House, which was located about five miles below where the park sits today. And so Andrew Jackson was carried there to be buried. And his expectant... His the Andrew Jackson Sr. The daddy. The daddy. The daddy. Okay. Uh, he didn't have a son, his son yet. He had two boys, Hugh and Robert. And the president that we know had not quite arrived yet. His mother was still expectant with him. And so the father was buried and the family, rather than going all the way back to their home site and being isolated, returned back to stay with one of Elizabeth's sisters. This is where some of the controversy about where actually Andrew Jackson was born comes into play. Uh, Andrew Jackson, the president, consistently said that he was born on the Crawford Plantation, which is where the park is located. After the president's death, some of his cousins claimed that, no, he was born at the McCamey Cabin, which was a little bit further north and east of where the park lies today. And at the time, there was a road that ran between Salisbury, North Carolina, and Camden, South Carolina. And if you lived west of the road, you were in South Carolina. And if you lived east of the road, you were in North Carolina. The Crawfords were west, the McCameys were east. And the road moved back and forth over time. Uh, the park today still sits on the North Carolina boundary. But what we have as a state boundary today was established in 1813 which at that time Andrew Jackson's 45 years old and long gone. But Jackson consistently said he was born at the Crawfords place. He definitely lived with the Crawfords his childhood. The other thing that adds to the mystery is once Andrew Jackson 
left the wax saws, he never came back. So why did they call it the wax saws? Now, there had been a local Indian tribe here called the wax saws prior to the Catawba moving into the area. Uh, by the time Jackson's the president is born, they had been taken over by the Catawba tribe just because their numbers were so few. And so there were probably, you know, descendants of the Waxaws in the Catawbas that Andrew Jackson knew, but he probably never knew a Waxaw. So the Catawba Indian area, uh, it, did, it, did it comprise the Waxaws? Were they living in Indian land? Or for those listeners out there, there is actually an area uh, just north here called Indian land. Okay, right. You have the Catawba Indian Reservation. This general area all the way up into North Carolina is called the Waxaws. So it's kind of confusing. Right. It's all kind of one area in some respects. Tell me, can you define that a little bit for our listeners? Try, can try a little bit. Um, the Catawba tribe was given a land area of about 144,000 acres in the early 1760s. And it was a square and it was called the Catawba Nation. And its southern boundary was about five miles north of the park. And the road that I spoke of ran along the eastern boundary of the Catawba Nation. And then once the Catawba Nation ended, the road continued to separate the two Carolinas. The Waxaws can be considered all over the place a little bit. Some of it was west of the Catawba River. It went as far south as current-day Lancaster, South Carolina. It did go as far east as current-day Waxaw, North Carolina. And then the northern boundary was the Catawba Nation. Um, but some of it did skirt around the east side of the Catawba Nation as well. The town that is Waxhaw today did not come about until the 1880s, a full century later, as a railroad town. So if someone were going to the, the map that best represented this area at the time of the revolution, at the time of Andrew Jackson, which map would they want to refer to? They'd want to look at the Muzan map. That was the most current and accurate map at the time. And that would be, that was? 1775. Okay. Right, right. in that area. The Catawba Nation would be clearly defined on there. It's a, it's a square. Even today, if you look at the boundary between North and South Carolina that has some odd shaped angles to it, that's part of the Catawba Nation originally between what is Lancaster County and Mecklenburg County, North Carolina. So I was talking to Scott Seifert again, and we were talking about that and, and uh, talking about the the gray area of land ownership and how when the tax collectors came into this particular area, the landholders or freeholders would say, if it was a South Carolina tax guy, they would say, oh, no, we're in North Carolina. And the North Carolina tax guy, they would say, oh, no, we're in South Carolina. So it was kind of this, this gray area that really didn't get rectified for years. Re- really true. And a lot of the land that started about this area near the Catawba River and going west one time had truly been part of North Carolina, but in, a, in an attempt between the two Carolinas to define their boundary, mistake was made in their calculations and it added about 15 to 20 miles more northerly for South Carolina in the 1750s and 60s. It was called the New Acquisition. So, you know, in all likelihood, where the park sits today probably was in both Carolinas at one time or another, just depending on whose survey you were judging it by. That's right. So how far are we away from Camden? From Camden, we are 50 miles. 50 miles. Right. How far are we away from, uh, I don't know, 
uh, let's say York, South Carolina. Uh, what is York now? We are about, it's a 45 minute drive easily, but you're probably looking at about 30 to 35 miles. Okay. And, and the reason I bring that up, we were talking to Zach Limhouse from the York County Museums, okay. the Cultural Museums, and he was saying that talking along the lines of what you just said, that uh, the new acquisition district came into play as the South Carolina state legislator was trying to bring a little bit of uh, governance to the uh, outlying areas, but still yet their center of government for this area was Camden, which is still 50 miles away from here. Right, and Camden would have been loosely governing this area. I mean, they did have a public jail, or gal as they called it. Right. But uh, that was that was the closest big town per se, south of here, on your way to Charleston. And so was there there uh, was there any government bodies here in this this area mm-hmm. other than Camden? No, I mean, and, the, and then really in this area, the minister or the pastor of the Waxhaw Meeting House would have been considered the community leader, I and see. people would have turned to him for guidance. And that was true with a lot of these communities in the backcountry. And the church communities probably contributed a lot to the revolution because of the opinions of the pastors who were in this area. They helped build the fire up a little bit. I see. I see. Well, so tell us a little bit about Andrew's uh, upbringing. He was pretty typical of other people in this area. Uh, you know, the, they would have been farmers and would have had to been self-reliant as much as possible. Again, if you're looking at Camden being your closest place to trade, there are a few other small trading posts that people might run at their businesses like a mill, but they would have had very limited goods. So you produced most of what you used and consumed. Uh, Boys at the time, you know, their jobs were to gather water and firewood and helped tend to the livestock. Uh, gardening tended to be women's work, as they would say. But uh, they would help procure food from hunting and gathering as well. And like we mentioned earlier, uh, there were some small schools in this area. With the Scotch-Irish, it was important to them to be able to read and study the Bible. That was the center of their education system. So did they have a library in their in their uh, home? That we know I of? doubt that, but probably most everyone had a copy of the Bible. Right. And I've seen some statistics that say as much as 82% of the Scotch-Irish were literate, which is different from what I think a lot of people think of the backcountry people. But Jackson would have gone to what they would have called a field school he and okay. his brothers would, and it would have been, you know, some abandoned building that they designated as a place you could gather and get some informal instruction. Again, his mother had ambitions for him to be a minister, because after all, you're going to lead your community if you're the minister in some of these places. And so she sent him to what was called the Waxhaw Academy. And the academy had been founded by the first minister, William Richardson, in the early 1760s. And he had trained in Edinburgh at the university, so he was giving these boys a little extra education. And Andrew went after Mr. Richardson had been there, but uh, he got a little bit of extra education. 
later in life, you know, somebody said that he could not use a four-syllable word or spell the same word the same way twice in the same letter, but he knew enough to put his thoughts together and communicate his ideas right. to right. people. If you go around and you um, you start looking at the history, this the, the Pastor William Richardson was the namesake for William Richardson Davy, right? Right. right. Uh, and William Richardson Davy actually studied under him as well. Yes. And then William Richardson Davy studied the law or read the law, is what they said, uh, in some, to, from someone in Salisbury, I believe, which is something that Andrew Jackson did as well later on in his life. It was almost like some of his life was paralleled with William Davy, correct? William Davy was the local boy who did good. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, Andrew Jackson picked up on that real quick and saw that as maybe the direction he wanted to go. Um, yeah, Davy went to the Waxhaw Academy. He went on to Princeton, which did would he? have been a religious training school yeah. at the time. But um, he did and came back to the Waxhaws. And then, as you said, studied law with a gentleman named Spruce McKay, who was in Salisbury. And so Davy kind of was connected to North Carolina at the point of life that Andrew Jackson met him, but he was back in his home region because of the Revolutionary War. Right, right. Uh, so, as, as a recap, so what you're saying is that William Davies' ancestors, or really, I say ancestors, his father and maybe his grandfather, they were, they were from the Ulster region of Ireland. Right. And they came here. Right. His father died before he was born. He was, his mother was struggling on her own, raising three boys at that point. Is that right? Because you right. had Robert, Hugh, and Andrew. Right. Right. So she's, she's living with her sister to raise these, these boys. And uh, in the back country where there's no government really for 50 miles, if semblance of government and trade and that sort of thing, the closest one being down in Camden. You had Charlotte, which was an outcropping of about 20 buildings or whatever. Right. Camden was the big upcountry kind of hub at that particular point. So in the, in the first parts of his life, he, he has no father. To, and he's, he's uh, looking at his brothers and kind of working it through on his own. Some, somewhat, yes. But now this is also where that kinship comes into play. In that, you know, the uncle here, James Crawford, would have sort of been a male figure. His brother, Robert Crawford, who lived just south of us along the Waxhaw Creek, was there. Robert McCamey, who was another uncle, and Robert Leslie, who's just up the road as well. All of these cousins are just kind of floating in between the families. And, you know, it's almost like, okay, where does the workforce need to be today? And they're going to stay with that people. So they're, they've got all these people in their lives that are family. And again, that's part of what becomes Andrew Jackson is he is very leery of outsiders and has suspicions of people that might not be kin to him. And Ken can also be loosely considered, I consider you such a good friend that you're like family. And this, he carries this on through his life in that, you know, at one point when he's an adult, Rachel, his wife, and he have 20 wards living with them at the Hermitage who are not their own children, but they're helping them out and helping them 
you know, learn about the world and make it. Right. And so, you know, he saw some of that demonstrated when he's growing up here. And so, you know, he's got good close connections, not only to his brothers, but, you know, he's got some cousins that are closer to his age as well that he's just as close with. And uh, they tend to move with each other as well later in life. Uh, I was reading about Andrew Jackson and then comparing it to uh, current events. I know President Trump has kind of seen himself as the modern day Andrew Jackson in some ways. Don't know if that's right or wrong or whatever, but he's channeling into a perception of being a person of the people as opposed to being a politician or being part of the aristocracy, so to speak, uh, which I know Andrew Jackson fought against and actually, uh, you know, kind of made his own mark. He came from right. nothing and made his own mark in that regard. So. Right. Yeah, I, can, I would say probably the effect that Andrew Jackson had on the society in the 1830s when he became president would probably be similar to what some people respond to today's presidency. Sure. Do we know of anything that his mother has said to him that maybe he remembered later on in life that he kind of kind of took to heart? He did. His, uh, since it was his only parent, he had a good relationship with his mother. Uh, she was a spinner of thread or linen thread, and then that thread would be used for weaving. And that was, you know, fairly typical Scotch-Irish from the Ulster area's occupations. Uh, women tended to create the thread and men were the weavers. And they lived with the Crawfords in part not to have a place to live that was safer, but also to help at the Crawfords. Her sister was said to have not been in good health most of her life. And so, you know, she's helping raising her nieces and nephews as well. Okay. And um, throughout Jackson's life, he took up for women who seemed to sometimes be an underdog. I think there was a little bit of that connection for between him and his wife, uh, Rachel Jackson. When he met her, she was married to another man and trying to go through a divorce. I believe that other man was kind of violent to her. Is that right? Right. I yeah, mean, there, there that, was was a, a, that was one of those things where it was kind of a domestic violence situation. Yes. She needed someone to come in and, 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 right. and kind of be her... Uh, defender in some respects. Right. And so Jackson liked the role of being a champion. Even when he becomes president in his first cabinet, uh, the wife of John Eaton, who was his secretary of war, came under scrutiny in Washington because of her background. And uh, Jackson took up for her. And it eventually divided his cabinet so that they all had to resign and he had to start over fresh to get traction back. Right. I know that you have that quote uh, or that, that he said came from his mama. Would you mind reading for our listeners that, that quote? No, not at all. When he got this information from his mother, a lot had happened in his life at that point. And in fact, she was leaving him to go take care of those nephews. In fact, his two brothers had already died in the they revolution, both, right? They had both died and Jackson himself had just survived smallpox and was recuperating and his cousins had been captured by the British Army and were on a prison ship in Charleston Harbor, which was the last place anybody would want to be. That's right. Uh, that was just a bad deal. And she was going to Charleston to tend to her nephews. Again, that family connection. And she gave him some advice that Jackson recalled as an adult and said he followed his whole life. And it went a little bit like this. She said, Andrew, if I should not see you again, I wish you to remember and treasure up some things I've already said to you. In this world, you will have to make your own way. To do that, you must have friends. You can make friends by being honest, and you can keep them by being steadfast. 
You must keep in mind that friends worth having will in the long run expect as much from you as they give to you. To forget an obligation or to be ungrateful for a kindness is a base crime, not merely a fault or sin, but an actual crime. Men guilty of it sooner or later must suffer the penalty. In personal conduct, be polite, but never ubiquitous. No one will respect you more than you esteem yourself. Avoid quarrels as long as you can without yielding to imposition, but sustain your manhood always. Never bring a suit at law for assault and battery or for defamation. The law affords no remedy for such outrages that can satisfy the feelings of a true man. Never wound the feelings of others. Never brook wanton outrage upon your own feelings. If you ever have to vindicate your feelings or defend your honor, do it calmly. If angry at first, Wait until your wrath cools before you proceed. The Planter Society, the aristocracy down in Charleston, uh, and they looked down on the Scotch-Irish uh, in the backcountry, and they used them as a buffer between the Indians and themselves right. to kind of... Uh, and if you listen to the diaries or read the diaries of Woodmason, who was a Anglican minister that coming through this area, uh, actually had a wedding of hundreds of people down at Hanging Rock. Right. Uh, you would, if you were to listen to what he wrote about these, uh, about the Scotch-Irish in the backcountry and then what the, uh, the officers of the British Army thought about them, you would think that these were a bunch of illiterate, you know, yahoos back here. But then you read that and how she is able to articulate her point so well that he remembers it years later. Yes. It's just, it's phenomenal. She obviously... Was uh, was learned in some ways, even if she learned her, even if she taught herself. But uh, what a what a I want to say romantic. People don't talk like that anymore. No, no, not at all. And I mean, you you read some of that and you think of Jackson later, and sometimes you think of him as an angry, rash person who reacts before he stops and thinks. But he did a fairly good job in his adult life of trying to follow that and normally tried to give himself a step or two before he reacted to something although it just it's not it's not as exciting to remember jackson that way he was a cold uh and and calculating general and 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 went up against indians and british and he was all over the south uh, later on in his life and he if he were that rash he would have not he would have not won those battles as as many as he did no, he, he he planned and thought things out, even politically, a lot more than people would like to give him credit sometimes. And, you know, again, it's advice like that. And it's also, you know, the experiences he had as well. And, you know, you can kind of, you're talking about his generalship. You know, a lot of that came from what he observed here in the backcountry during the revolution. What was his role during the revolution? Um, an observer at first and... Later on, he actually became active military in the militia. His oldest brother, Hugh, joined the army and went towards Charlestown in 1779. And there was a battle at what's called Stono's Ferry on the river, Stono River. And according to tradition, he died of heat exhaustion during the battle. Uh, Wasn't actually wounded, but it was a summertime event and he became overheated and died. So that was Jackson's first direct experience with the war. And then in 1780, after Charlestown fell in May, uh, the army started moving back 
into Carolina, the British intending on taking the colony back over and turning everybody back to the king and there be no resistance. Um, this road that we were talking about earlier that connected Camden to Salisbury, well, that's like a highway running through this area. So everybody, including the armies, are going to be using that road to get from point A to point B. Was that the Great Wagon Road or was it a... It, it was an extension, of, an the extension wagon road. of the wagon road. Okay. Uh, actually, it came into Charlottetown. Okay. And then a westerly leg of it, which a lot of people call the core, ran through York County on over towards Augusta, Georgia, where it terminated. But here it swung east towards Camden to get you to Charleston and the coast. And, you know, the trade was a big deal, so people were trying to get to where the port was. And um, one contingent of the Continental Army, the U.S. Continental Army, had not been captured in Charleston. They, they were outside of the town when the actual surrender happened. And so they were moving back north, and there was a cutoff that didn't bring you through this part of the wax sauce, but took you around the wax sauce and still got you to Salisbury, and that's where they were trying to go. And they were chased by a group of British soldiers led by Bannerston Tarleton, and the Continentals were led by Abraham Buford. And Tarleton called up of Buford, remarkably after Buford had a head start, demanded a surrender. The surrender didn't happen. Buford decided to fight it out, and it was a battle of cavalry versus infantry, and that usually didn't work well for the infantry. Buford commanded his soldiers to fire when they could see the whites of the horse's eyes, and that meant you got one shot before the horses were on pile you, and like I said, if you're sitting on a horse trying to fight somebody from the ground, the horse is going to win. And it was a bad scene, uh, became known locally as Tarleton's Massacre or Quarter, and our Buford's Massacre, and the community where this battle happened today is still named Buford. Uh, Jackson's family participated in the aftermath in that they gathered the wounded soldiers, they were brought back to the Waxhaw Meeting House, and Jackson and his mother and brother went and nursed the wounded soldiers. So that was his first experience seeing war up close. Uh, within a couple of days, the British Legion, which was the cavalry out fit that Tarleton commanded were up and down the road looking to find the Catawba to help get them on the British side and looking for anybody that might have strayed away from the Continental Armies that they destroyed. And Jackson later in life claimed that he had his musket with him and he was hiding in the woods and saw some of the legion which he thought was Tarleton riding up the road and he said he could have shot him had he been brave enough at the moment but he decided against it. Right. Um, well, he would have been how old at that time? He would have been 13. Just, 13 years just old. Just turned 13. You can't really blame him too much on No, that. no. But uh, within the month of the massacre, which was late May, uh, the British Army had established an outpost at Hanging Rock, a camp, so that they had a supply base to reach out into the communities while they were trying to convert people. And here on the Crawford Farms, mainly Robert's Crawford's farm, which was close to the creek, uh, some of Sumter's men, Thomas Sumter's men, started forming quietly as a militia. And uh, Robert and Andrew Jackson every day got to go and watch the soldiers train and drill and be soldiers. And like you said, at 13, that's still a big deal too. Right. Even though he's seen what could happen. And again, this is where he gets reacquainted with William Davy, and he sees Davy leading these troops and 
being in charge and so all of this stuff is starting to form in his mind that the military is the way he likes to spend his time. So Kurt, uh, I know that, uh, that we've talked quite a bit right now. It looks like this is going to be two episodes. So uh, we're going to take a break right now and start again on our next episode. And we hope our listeners will continue on. Thank you. Hope so.